Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up, all different angles of the COVID-19 discussion, including why there isn't more testing in Ontario. And also, we speak to conservative leader of Canada, Andrew Scheer, the official opposition, and get his take on all of this. And what can you do about your hair? We'll cover all angles on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid. He is a faculty member, human and social sciences, medical doctor and health policy advisor at Wilfrid Laurier University and chat with him up until we get to the premiere. Uh, Doctor, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Of course, happy to speak to you, Scott. Ahmad, we're hearing numbers and questions coming from the press in regard to testing in Ontario, that Ontario has tested uh, a a far lower amount of people than other uh, populated provinces. Um, What is the understanding, what is the reasoning that you think of for that? Uh, Minister Elliott said that there had been a backlog, but now that has has gone through. But again, we're we're seeing relatively uh, low numbers of testing in Ontario. Any, Any thought on that? Why? Well, I think that's because for a long time there were a lot of reports about a backlog in Ontario. So I think the government's trying to get ahead of that by reassuring the public that, no, we are getting uh, testing done and we are getting results back. As we know right now, there is no more backlog, as far as we know from the government, on any of the tests that we've sent so far. So I think it's just our way of showing and the government's way of showing that we're getting ahead of the pandemic as much as possible. So once the backlog is, has gone through, which the minister says has happened, should mm-hmm. we not see more testing, higher testing numbers than what we are? Well, eventually we will. I think as more and more assessment centers get built up uh, and we get better at like sort of figuring out who gets the test and in, in the time frame that they get it, we will see an escalating number of number of people getting tested. I think that's part of the reasons why for a long time now we've been saying April would be the month that we'll see the highest surge of number of cases of covid that's partly because we'd be testing more people. Uh, we're seeing Quebec with higher numbers than Ontario's, um, roughly uh, twice that. Uh, will that change once we see the the backlog of testing go through? Will Ontario and Quebec be more even Stephen on this? Yeah, I think so. I think we're going to see a nationwide progression towards more uniform number of testing between each province. I think what's happening too here, Scott, is that uh, we're, uh, in terms of self-assessment, many of our people that have tested positive for corona, uh, COVID-19 now, are in recovery and remission. So I won't be surprised if the focus now shifts from sort of testing everybody. I think that we'll still be there. and We'll still have to see some emphasis on testing as many people as, pos- as possible. But now I think we're trying to figure out people that are recovered, because 81% of people do recover from COVID. What can we learn from that? We're hearing a lot of reports about being able to develop an incredible clinical trial study here in Canada on the treatment of COVID-19 based on survivors of the COVID-19. That's a whole new uh, sort of game changer in the story, something that we weren't able to discuss in the past that now is becoming the current conversation. So those that have recovered could very much be a part of a study moving forward. We have certain, we are starting to hear reports of that. They are. I mean, that's for sure. The study is already underway, actually. Uh, so it's done by three big universities in Montreal, University of Toronto and McMaster University. It's a massive clinical trial that's looking at the blood of survivors of COVID-19 to try to use that to develop a treatment 
uh, to COVID-19. And so one of the big things that they're urging for the study, the researchers behind the study is, uh, please, if you have recovered from COVID-19, identify yourself and be willing to donate blood so we can do this very, very important study that will help us eventually get ahead of this. Uh, getting back to the testing again, uh, all of these questions around testing, much like supplies, just simply because there was a shortage of them initially. Uh, and why a shortage here? Because it seems that some other countries had, had, had more tests and were able to do more tests. The primary reason behind the shortage is that, A, we weren't expecting this pandemic to happen at this scale in Canada. And so our current supplies, domestic supplies of the testing kits, was not, just simply not available. And then when we try to recruit more uh, through our outside trade uh, agreements, that faced some difficulty. So as we've heard in the news, the U.S. has tried to stop some of the supplies of masks along with some of the kit supplies uh, to Canada. So I think this is what uh, raised the question about international cooperation and what's Canada's relation with other countries and securing those kits for our own nation. But also I think what's happening here is that uh, the more we're realizing that given that the majority of people will recover uh, without the need for tests, uh, because even if they're diagnosed positive or not, they're still going to recover and be okay with it. Uh, I think we're also trying to figure out who really needs uh, the urgent need of, the, of the limited supply of what we currently have. Uh, we have heard uh, some chatter as well as uh, uh, the, the physical distancing, even as we're hearing now that Wuhan is going back to normal. They've opened the doors there and the people are, are allowed out and about in Wuhan after I believe it's, uh, I can't remember the exact number of days, maybe it's 97 days of, mm-hmm. of, uh, of isolation and such. Uh, but then many are saying that we could have an experiencing the whole physical distancing thing for a couple of years even. Is that, is that accurate? I guess we don't I mean, know, but your, but your opinion. I mean, it's exactly that. We don't know. I would find that hard to believe. I'll tell you why. I think, that, I think we are seeing reports that part of our physical distancing and wash hands, washing our hands, and, and what we've been doing so far is working. And so that's great, great news. Uh, and that reassures me that we will get to a point where we see some back to normal life uh, as we knew it before COVID. I think that will we continue to see physical distancing for a long time? I don't think so. I think what's going to happen is once we get ahead of this, now that treatment uh, trials are underway, we are definitely working towards developing a vaccine. We will come back to a point where we were pre-COVID. But just to say that if we see a, all of a sudden a surge again in COVID-19, we might see a reoccurrence of physical distancing, but I don't think it will be the norm. What about warmer weather? We often hear that with the typical influenza, warmer weather uh, helps uh, kill this off. A- any idea, and again, I know this is all new, but any thoughts as to as we get into warmer weather, whether that will help? We actually do have an answer for that, so I'm really glad that you brought up this question. Uh, we've looked at studies, and for example, in Singapore and parts of Africa where COVID-19 did happen, and they have much warmer climate. So technically, it is their summer when COVID-19 was happening to them. And then we also saw the virus in northern parts of China, which was very cold. So that is all to say that the virus really does not discriminate against weather conditions. So, but we will expect the hope here, and again, this is the hope because we don't know yet, that over our summertime, we will see a lower reoccurrence of the virus. But it doesn't mean that it won't happen in warmer temperatures. I think we already have the answer on that the COVID-19 is not related to whether it can happen in any weather conditions. 
Dr. Ahmad Khalid has been with us, social sciences and human and social sciences, health policy advisor, Wilfrid Laurier University. Ahmad, as always, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated, and you take care. Pleasure talking to you. Have a good day. I want to bring in Benoit Hardy-Chartrand, adjunct professor at Temple University, Japan, who is in Tokyo right now, and and squeeze them in simply because uh, Wuhan District in China, where this all started, has had their lockdown lifted at 76 days. Benoit, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Sure. Thanks for having me. Uh, your thoughts on what has happened in Wuhan? What can we learn from this? Well, uh, Wuhan, as we know, the lockdown started uh, in late January. I believe it was January 23rd. And what's interesting is the sort of lockdown that we saw is unlike anything we've seen around the world, right? This was probably the largest scale uh, lockdown in history when you consider the number of people uh, in Wuhan, if you consider the restrictions that were applied on uh, on the citizens of Wuhan, which were much stricter, as most of you uh, probably saw in the last few months, than what we've seen in other countries, even considering the intensity of the lockdowns in Spain, for example, in Italy, and much of Europe. Uh, what we saw in China was really unprecedented. But the reality is the Chinese government, uh, the Chinese Communist Party, has the tools to do that has the authority to do that in a way that our governments uh, don't necessarily have. So it's, once this crisis is completely uh, over, and I'm, I'm, I imagine this won't be before uh, quite a few months yet, uh, there are going to be a lot of lessons to be learned. Uh, we'll see what approach is more conducive to a fast reduction or a, a reduction uh, and flattening the curve, as we've all heard. And uh, so this is going to be only done in a few months, but it's going to be really interesting to see the differences between uh, China and neighboring countries like Japan, where I am at the moment. What is life like for you in Tokyo now? Well, it is extremely uh, interesting to see how things have evolved here, because until about one or two weeks ago, things were very I wouldn't say very, I would say relatively normal in Tokyo. While my friends and family back home in Canada were, uh, were all self-confining uh, for the last at least, at least a month, I would say, I would imagine, um, in Tokyo, things were running relatively normally. I mean, other than a few government-run businesses or buildings that were closed, uh, most businesses were operating as normal. However, things started changing about two weeks ago, I would say, when cases started um, started uh, going up pretty pretty fast. And now, two days ago, the Japanese government finally declared a, a state of emergency, which uh, there was a feeling that, that this was be done a few, since a few weeks ago, especially since the Tokyo Olympics were postponed since uh, until next year. There was a feeling that it was it was really inevitable that the state of emergency would be declared. Now it has been the case for two days, and uh, things are a lot quieter. I was uh, it's certainly not to the point that that uh, what we see in Canada. But I was walking outside tonight. A lot of shops were closed, not all, but uh, many restaurants were closed, and the streets were much quieter than what we normally see in a city of uh, 38 million people. Hmm. Is China out of the woods, and are their numbers accurate? Well, this is the big uh, million-dollar question, right? Um, it seems, if the numbers were to be believed, that things have gotten a lot better. And I think the Chinese government would not have reopened Wuhan, um, which they started doing today, I believe, Wuhan, where the, the whole crisis started, 
they would not have done so if there was a belief that they had, you know, that they had uh, reached the peak or not, not reached the peak, but that they had really been quite out of the woods, at least for that particular city. Now, the second part of your of your question uh, regarding whether or not these numbers are to be believed, uh, this is uh, something that a lot of people are remaining suspicious about, or there are a lot of doubts that remain about their numbers. And these doubts are certainly warranted. I mean, the Communist Party of China has a long history of uh, of forging or fabricating uh, numbers. This goes back to the Mao days. Uh, for There were a lot of campaigns uh, during the early days of the People's Republic of China when um, provinces needed to report to the central government certain figures. They had certain targets. And government officials had all the incentives in the world to give um, fabricated numbers to the central government because otherwise they'd be in trouble. And that remains to this day. The GDP, for example, for years, the GDP figure is given by China. A lot of experts have been casting doubts over these numbers. Um, and in the case, in the current case, when it comes to the coronavirus, uh, these doubts are even more warranted given what happened early on uh, the crisis. As, uh, as you know, and most of you, all of your listeners know, I imagine, at the beginning of the crisis, uh, the Chinese government was trying to downplay the issue. The first few weeks, they even tried to completely hide the issue. Uh, it punished some of the doctors that tried to blow the whistle and let the world know about this new virus that was, uh, that was, being, that was starting to wreak havoc. In, in the city. So given the actions of the Chinese government that date only three, you know, we're talking about only three months ago here, uh, the current doubts about their numbers uh, mm. are, are warranted and they will continue to be uh, to be expressed by a lot of people. Benoit Hardy-Chartrand has been with us, adjunct professor at Temple University, Japan, speaking to us from Tokyo today. Benoit, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thank you very much. You too. All right. Let's bring in our next guest, leader of the opposition, Andrew Scheer, Conservative Party leader of Canada. And he is with us now. Andrew, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. I hope you and your family are doing well. Thank you. So far, so good. I hope uh, you and all your listeners are, are healthy and, and doing well as well. These are tough times indeed. Uh, Andrew, what is the role of the opposition here? Because it's a very fine line. You have to be critical. You have to be aware of of what government is doing during these trying times. But on the other hand, you also have to be seen as rowing in the same direction. How do you find that balance? Right. And uh, you're absolutely right. These, these are different times, which calls for different approaches by lots of institutions within our country. Uh, we, we take the view that now is the time for us to kind of park the traditional differences between liberals and conservatives, the philosophical differences uh, about the role of government and uh, without looking uh, at, at other pieces of what the government is doing or not doing it, and really focus on the response to this crisis. And, and when we say focus on the response, we, we mean that that peer review, the, the scrutiny, the, the second set of eyes to make sure that the programs are doing uh, what they need to be doing. Uh, we've, we've said from the outset that we uh, agree with the Team Canada approach. Uh, we believe that the Parliament of Canada plays a crucial role in terms of making sure that uh, there is accountability, that if the government says one thing, that it actually does that thing, and also to, to, to amplify the voices for people who are being left out. You know, that, that's one of the reasons why 
We supported the notion of a wage subsidy to keep people working, but we find that the initial level of 10% was far too low, and we, we pushed, and we are pleased that the government has listened and raised that to 75%. So that's, that's kind of the approach that we're taking uh, during this time. Uh, what is taking so long for the House of Commons to come back? I mean, is this uh, are these technicalities, or is it a case of everybody reading through the documentation and know what they're doing before they're going in? Is it technical issues? I mean, we've all been working home for a couple of weeks now. Should the House of Commons be back? Well, I don't believe that it's wise right now to have uh, 338 members of parliament from literally every corner of the country coming together in a, in a confined space and then going home on the weekend. That's, that would run contrary to all the advice of, of all the health experts. Uh, so what we're working on right now is how to make sure the parliament does its job while at the same time respecting those health directives. Uh, we believe that there's a role for the opposition to play. We think that ministers should be coming to the House to provide updates, to allow members to raise questions on behalf of their constituents, to point out gaps or flaws. Uh, and we believe we can do that in a way where every party sends a reduced roster proportional to the results of the last election. So you know, Conservatives may send 11 to 15, Liberals might send 14 to 20, you know, that type of thing. Uh, those are all subject to negotiations that are on an ongoing basis. And in the meantime, as needed, when the government needs authority to, to do more things or do different things, we've already shown that we can come back on short notice to pass that legislation. And so I'm, I'm hopeful and optimistic in the, in the coming days we'll come to an agreement uh, as to how Parliament will operate into April, May and June. Uh, we remember that uh, the House of Commons uh, uh, voted on the first aid package, and at that point, uh, the Liberals uh, tried to th- squeeze through some extra power and some access to cash in, in a timeline uh, of like 21 months to, to have all of this power. Opposition, including yourself, uh, spoke out against that. Should we have perhaps given them that extra leeway so you didn't have to go back now? I don't believe so. I don't believe it's ever a good idea to to allow a government to to operate unchecked. Uh, we've already seen during this critical time that peer review is essential. Uh, look, uh, health experts uh, were were say, advising one thing on masks one week and then uh, changing that the following week. Uh, the, the government said in early March that they weren't going to close the border or restrict international travel, uh, only to be forced to change that decision. So it's in these moments where Parliament does need to provide that oversight. Uh, We are a democracy. We are a country that has gone through other crises in the past, two world wars, other health pandemics, where we haven't given up that uh, the, the, the right of parliamentarians to scrutinize the government. That is essential in a democracy. The, 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 we don't want government to assume unprecedented levels of power uh, just be, with the excuse that we're going through a crisis. We're saying, as an opposition, we're going to be responsible. We will cooperate. We will facilitate. We're not going to play procedural games to hold up much-needed legislation. Uh, it's good to have a second set of eyes. And the, the very fact that we now have to be recalled again shows that they don't always get it right the first time. And so there is a role for opposition members of parliament, and indeed members of the Liberal Party who aren't in cabinet, uh, to hold their colleagues to account, to hold the decision makers uh, responsible for what they have decided. Andrew Shear is with us, leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. Andrew, what is your main concern as we move forward with this? We're into well into week four of this now. Uh, many saying this could go on at least another month. What is your concern as we move forward with this? And this has now become routine. 
Right. Well, first and foremost, primary motivations here are keeping people healthy. Uh, we've all seen the, the scenarios where our healthcare system can be swamped by uh, too many people at the same time requiring intensive care ventilators and, and, and things like that. So it's essential that we adopt practices that that keep the number of cases uh, as, as low for as long as possible to allow our healthcare system to uh, accommodate that. Secondly is recognizing that people are going through a great deal of personal financial hardship, worried about you know seeing their, their savings dwindle or, or, or their credit cards get maxed out and not knowing how they're going to put food on the table next month. So we're kind of keeping an eye on, on ensuring that, there's, uh, are, that there are jobs for people to go back to. So right now we're looking at what other countries have done to flatten the curve and also keep more of their economy functioning uh, because that really achieves both goals of keeping people healthy for as long as possible and uh, ensuring that the personal financial hardship is, is mitigated. So we're looking at models in South Korea and Taiwan and Singapore to say, okay, what did they do with aggressive testing, with geolocation of, of uh, people with, um, who have tested positive? What measures can we do that comply with Canadian traditions of civil, civil liberties while at the same time adopting these types of measures that can get us back to normal as quickly as possible. That's what we're going to start inserting into the conversation in the coming days. Say, okay, we, we've, we've all been self-isolated. We've all done the social distancing. We've all uh, you know, closed restaurants and many retail outlets for several weeks now. Uh, is it time to look at some other methods that could, uh, could ease the economic aspect of this while at the same time protecting the health of Canadians? Andrew Shear has been with us, leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. Andrew, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Uh, I know you're very busy. Uh, much appreciated, and you take care. Thank you very much. Appreciate being on your show. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, it's my wife's birthday today, so happy birthday to her. <laughs> it's We're giving her virtual gifts. We're gi- <laughs> We've made a lot of homemade stuff for her. Uh, and ordering in for later tonight from her favorite local restaurant to help them stay in business and try to have some sort of celebration. And that's what we have to do during these times of self-isolation and such. We have to look to the positive. I said this to my 17-year-old daughter last night. You have to think about what you can do and less about what you can't do. Uh, seeking out good news is a great way to keep a great way to keep mentally balanced during the long period of social isolation imposed by the COVID-19 battle, uh, says a clinical psychologist who is an associate professor of psychology at the University of Alabama in Huntsville. Dr. Eric Seaman is with us now and says there are steps to stay uh, mentally healthy during uh, this time of isolation. Let's bring in Dr. Eric Seaman. Doctor, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Tell us now your thoughts on uh, what's happening in the United States, how the United States is coping with this, and in and, and, and what state they are at it now. Well, um, when we, it's kind of funny because uh, quite often people ask, what is the U.S. doing? And the first question, you know, really should be where in the U.S. first, considering just, uh, you know, how diverse the um, individual cultures are, if you will, you know, across the um, United States. When you look at the farming countries in our Midwest versus the Deep South versus the West, you know, things are, can be very different. Um, and uh, the United States, in many cases, uh, 
you know, wants, I guess uh, people want to see something happen quickly. And the problem with a quarantine is that uh, despite the really rapid progress that we see being made by medical professionals all over the world and our researchers, you know, who are doing just an outstanding job, that uh, the average person um, who's self-isolating right now or under quarantine, stay-at-home orders, um, you know, is getting frustrated because uh, they don't see things happening quickly. And part of it's because this is not the sort of a an emergency or a disaster that they're used to coping with. You know, I'm over 50, and this is the first time this has happened in my life. But I'm from South Florida, so I've been through a few hurricanes. And um, in, the, in Alabama, I've been through uh, several tornadoes. And uh, when I was in, in the military and I was stationed in California, I've been through a few earthquakes. You kind of know what to do in those situations, and you have a, an identified beginning, middle, and end. But uh, for a quarantine... In many cases, we don't see, you know, where that end point is, and there's a lot of ambiguity, and that uh, um, can be very frustrating for people. What advice do you have for those that are feeling anxious for that reason? I mean, it's important to remember this will pass, but what advice do you have for those that are feeling, uh, who are starting to, to succumb to the isolation? One of the most important things in any situation where there's ambiguity, you know, is uh, to try to give yourself another frame of reference. And uh, because it's very easy to uh, grab on to whatever information you can get. And sooner or later, that becomes sort of the only information you think you need. And it's one of the reasons why people will, you know, in, uh, you know, strange situations like a quarantine, develop a very negative focus because giving yourself a different frame of reference then at the very least gives you a basis of comparison. And what I ask people to do is take a page out of a relatively new approach in psychology. And I say relatively new because we're looking at, you know, 30, 40 years old now is uh, called positive psychology where it looks at human strengths and uh, things that we're good at. So instead of focusing uniquely on the problems people have. We look at what our strengths are. And uh, one of the strengths of uh, people is information processing. And if we can take a different frame of reference by looking at good news and specifically searching out good news, doing that actively and mindfully, then in a very natural way, taking advantage of the natural strengths of a person that good news sets up a different frame of reference and it allows that person to to expand their perspective and uh, in many cases stave off a lot of depression and anxiety because they have nothing else they don't feel as powerless they don't feel as hopeless and they don't feel like there's uh, nothing good out there how important is it for our leaders and how do they balance telling us the information that we need to know for our own good health and not creating panic. And you see, this is the, this is the problem is that, uh, um, you know, much like uh, when people are children, you know, they as kids assume that their parents know everything, right? And children, um, you know, will look to parents and think, man, they've got it together. And at that moment, the parent is thinking, Lord, please let me have this together. You know, they worry about 
um, you know, all these things that the kid looks at them and says, oh, well, the parent knows exactly what they're doing. And that's not too different, you know, from being a citizen, having a job, doing what you're supposed to do, and, you know, trusting that the government's going to run the country correctly. And there's so much going on that we just don't know about on a day-to-day -day basis that when a major emergency like this occurs, you know, we turn around and look at our leaders and with, you know, an assumption that, wow, I hope they've got this in hand. They know what they're doing. But our leaders are scrambling for information. And, you know, if they're doing it the right way, they're screening out information that might sound good but may not be exactly true. And then they know they need to give us information so that we're not going to panic, but they don't want to give us too much. And they need to um, couch that information in such a way that we can use it, but it doesn't become a source of, say, panic. And, you know, in the United States, there was a, uh, you know, release about information on, you know, a possible quarantine and uh, in some areas, it was not couched very well, and all the toilet paper disappeared off of shelves mm. because people yep. were assuming they were going to be trapped in their homes for the next six months, right? Um, so what ends up when people feel powerless or they feel like they're going to be trapped is uh, leads to maladaptive behaviors such as hoarding supplies. So what How we have seen in some cases, not just in the United States, but in plenty, you know, several places in the world is releasing good news, releasing figures on people who have survived the disease, releasing, you know, figures comparing um, COVID-19 process with uh, other things like automobile accidents or the flu, you know, and that helps set up a basis of comparison as well. How important is it for leaders to answer questions the best way they can? I mean, obviously, there's political stripes here. There's different views on how things should be done. Uh, but at the end of the day, how important is it for the leaders to be transparent? And we have that trust in them, even though we may not like the answer. And and, and now we're getting a lot of, uh, especially up here, models of what the projection could be, what it could be in worst-case scenarios. And there's been lots of debate about whether those numbers should be made uh, public or not. But if you qualify those as projections and, and, and qualify the information you're, you're giving to people, is it not best to have them be fully aware of what's going on rather than trying to cushion the hard, the difficult parts? I'll say that, uh, you know, now, of course, this is uh, going to kind of get out of my lane in psychology and dip into you know, personal points of view in terms of how things should be done. But because there is a lot of debate, you know, in psychology about things like information sharing and fields of leadership. But uh, the way I see it is that uh, if, you know, there is information that can be shared objectively, that can be shared, you know, with a minimum, you know, of unnecessary emotional context, I mean, you're talking about a disease that's killed people. Of course, there's going to be an emotional context there, but we don't want to see, you know, any panic mongering or muckraking and certainly not blaming other politicians. You know, we just want to release information and we don't release that information with somebody who's, you know, a talking head reading statistics. We want somebody who actually knows how to interpret this data like, uh, in the United States, the 
you know, head for the head of the uh, Center for Disease Control or mm-hmm. the Surgeon General. You know, that's who I would want to hear talking about it because they're going to they're already used to talking in such a way to the average person about those projections and couching it in such a way that we know that these are uh, unstable. And in many cases, we have to keep in mind that our politicians are people. And um, I see, you know, a lot of people blaming politicians, you know, in this administration as well as in the previous. And the problem there is that we forget they're human beings and they want to do a good job deep down and sometimes we feel what you know my field would call a demand pressure and they make an impulsive decision because they're anxious and that impulsive decision maybe was not the greatest one they could have made you know didn't give the right information or feeling like they have to give an answer when the right answer is i don't know but i'm going to find out um, you'd be surprised how many times somebody is more comforted by a leader sharing you know their own ambiguity but at the same time saying, I am going to find out, and then I will share it with you. But uh, we don't hear enough of that. And I think one of the problems that you know we're having now is uh, we're also seeing conflicting sources of information, and uh, it's not being couched well enough so that, say, numbers from Italy are being well-defined as numbers from Italy after this has been going on for this period of time versus numbers from, you know, Great Britain and numbers from the United States and so forth. That leads to a lot of confusion. So as we leave, last question, you said search for the positive. Any, any other advice you could give us as, as we try to, to, to wade through all of this? Well, in uh, a case of this, like a quarantine, we do tend to um, look for any information we have and we may end up getting anxious or depressed. And uh, I would uh, like to remind people that this is a really good time to cling to your social support. If you have religious or existential beliefs that bring you peace, engage in them. You know, call your friends, call your family. And if you're in an area that has an active quarantine and you can't leave home and you're unhappy about that or you're feeling stressed, that's a good time to set a schedule and engage in things that make you feel productive. Look for good news on the Internet. You know, the news agencies are posting it. It's out there. If you ask for, you know, go in and do a Google search, you know, for, you know, COVID-19 survival rates, you're going to see all kinds of really good stories. Um, what always meant a lot to me was people helping people stories. You know, there's a guy here in Alabama who's well known for, um, helping out elderly folks. He cuts grass, you know, he does minor housework, doesn't charge them anything. Well, he has changed his business over to, uh, getting their groceries and medication, making sure they get to appointments and, you know, he doesn't charge them. So, you know, that by itself to me is very heartwarming because it means that this guy has, you know, the community at heart. He's got a heart of gold. He's taking precautions and protecting himself. And if he's doing that, then what about the leaders in our fields, scientists, physicians, you know, several of the really, really top, top-notch top researchers at uh, my university, the University of Alabama in Huntsville, are involved in the COVID-19 problem. Um, 
if this guy who used to cut grass is doing that and companies like the um, gentleman with the pillow company that people make fun of online is now making these masks and giving them away to hospitals for free. What are all of those really big minds doing out there right now? Mm, well, they're volunteering or well working diligently to solve this problem. And that's good news. You know, we need to look for good news and we need to keep in touch with the people who support us. Well said. Eric Seaman has been with us, Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of Alabama in Huntsville. Eric, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated, and stay well. Thank you, sir. Stay safe, and uh, sorry if I get a little long-winded, but uh, this is something I'm passionate about. I want people to be well, and, you know, positive psychology, what we want most in the world is for you to be happy. Thank you very much for that message. All right, uh, we've heard uh, lots of information anecdotally about crossing borders. We were, uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, had a, a friend of mine who was a snowboarder who came, who came back uh, from Florida into Ottawa. And, you know, they heard the heed from the, uh, the, the prime minister, everybody needs to come home, all of that sort of thing. And they crossed the border, and basically the only thing that was said to them was, welcome home. <laughs> And they were really given no instruction, no advice. Now, we're thinking that since then, perhaps all of that has changed uh, as the 14-day quarantine went into effect after the people already came back from March break, or a lot of them did. This was the week or so after uh, that we finally did uh, go beyond voluntary uh, quarantining for those out of the country for, uh, for 14 days uh, and, and made it mandatory with the Quarantine Act. Uh, however, what is the situation at our borders? Uh, on our Global News website, no public health official screening for COVID-19 at Canadian borders is the title of the article by Brian Hill, Global News investigative reporter. And there are currently no public Public health officials stationed at the Canada-U.S. land border crossings to assist in the screening of COVID, uh, for COVID-19, Global News has heard. Also, the union that represents the border officers has, uh, officers has been asking the government to place health officials at all major border land crossings uh, for weeks, but so far nothing has been done. To talk more about all of this, investigative reporter Global News, Brian Hill, he is with us now. Brian, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Again, we've heard so much information anecdotally, whether it's people coming from international flights or, or uh, flights from the United States or even crossing on land. As I, I mentioned, the, the story of a friend of mine who was just waved basically through uh, a couple of weeks ago. What is going on at the border? What is the procedure when you're crossing in and out of the United States by land? Sure. So, so uh, yeah, you're right to point out that there are different procedures. Uh, well, Different scenarios, depending on whether you're coming back to the country by air or by land. Uh, at, at the land border crossings, uh, what we're hearing is that uh, CVSA officers, like at airports, the CVSA officers at the land border crossings are really uh, sort of driving the vehicle here. They're the ones that are going to be doing the initial screening. They're going to be asking questions. Uh, our understanding and what we've been told by the Canada Border Services Agency is that Anyone returning to Canada, whether by land or by air, is asked uh, if they have uh, a cough, if they have a fever. So the, really the extent of the questioning uh, related to COVID-19 uh, is, is limited to that. Do you have a cough? Do you have a fever? Um, if people answer no and if there are no visible signs of illness, uh, then they're given a pamphlet with information on you know, mandatory self-isolation, social distancing, those sorts of things. Um, and uh, in, in the case of if somebody's crossing by land and they say, 
yes, I'm ill, or if they look ill, if there's something that causes the, the border officer to believe that this person may be sick, that it's at that point where the, the, that officer is uh, supposed to contact public health officials by phone, uh, and then uh, an assessment will be conducted of that individual by phone. Um, that differs from how things are done at airports, where Public Health Agency of Canada officials are actually physically on site, and, and, and that screening process, once done by CVSA, if somebody is ill or suspected of being sick or has symptoms of COVID-19, then they will be referred to those on-site individuals. But as we reported this morning, uh, those, those Public Health Agency of Canada officials are not on site at land border crossings, which are now the biggest driver in terms of the number of people entering Canada. So why should there be health uh, staff at every border? And is this at every crossing with every guard? Uh, how many of them should be there? So, uh, yeah, we, we, we spoke to the union that represents CBSA officers uh, and uh, their president, Jean-Pierre Fortin, said that they believe that uh, the Public Health Agency of Canada staff should be at major land border crossings. So uh, according to uh, uh, Jean-Pierre, there are over 100 land border crossings between Canada and the United States. He's not proposing that there should be uh, uh, health officials at every single one, but major ones, yes. For example, the crossing uh, 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 between Windsor and Detroit, uh, it it's, uh, you know represents a significant portion of uh, the trans travel between the two countries, upward of 35% for commercial traffic, even higher. Uh, so it's a like that crossing is really a, a focal point. We've also seen. You know, and, and in terms of why uh, the CBSA feels this is important, uh, or the union does anyways, is that, uh, that, 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 well, one, having people on site train medical professionals with expertise will allow them to see the working environment the CBSA officers operate in. They'll be able to con connect and, 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 and interact uh, with CBSA officers, providing them advice and guidance on the screening process, and as well as how to stay safe themselves. Uh, all of that, providing that information in person in real time. Um, and then also when you've got a, a place like Detroit, which has become an epicenter for the, the global outbreak, uh, Detroit, uh, Michigan, sorry, with less than a third of the population of Canada, has more cases and, and almost triple the number of confirmed deaths of Canada alone. So there are concerns that uh, with Detroit becoming such an epicenter and Michigan becoming an epicenter that uh, we need to have uh, more stringent uh, uh, controls in place at that border. Do we know if they're screening people coming from China still? What is the procedure if you're on a flight from China? So first of all, the numbers have really dropped. Um, so, so, so uh, uh, you know, at, at one point when the, the call came um, from the prime minister uh, to have people return to Canada, the, the CBSA was processing upwards of 400,000 people uh, in a 24-hour period. Uh, so just a tremendous number of people were returning to Canada, coming back to Canada. Um, we had uh, statistics just released by CBSA yesterday show that by air, uh, only 35,000 people uh, returned to Canada in the most recent week. So to 35,000 in a week. Uh, 
So the numbers are very, very low. Um, and, uh, you know, the screening process at airports involves either an officer or one of the automated machines that are now there at the airports asking that same question. Are you ill? Uh, do you have a cough? Do you have a fever? Do you have these symptoms? Uh, and then asking people to attest to the fact that they will uh, self-isolate. Again, officers have there's, there's an increased presence, the CDSA says, uh, where they'll be asking questions, physically observing people, looking for signs of illness, et cetera. So there are those uh, health officials at airports, but not at land crossings, which is, again, odd considering there are more crossing by land at this point. Uh, is there enough staff to do this? That's a good question. Um, so, so we asked. Public Safety Canada, the Minister's Office, uh, Health Canada, as well as the CBSA to explain why. Uh, we asked a very simple question. Yeah. Why are public health officers at airports, why are they not at land border crossings? Uh, and none of the agencies actually directly answered that question. Um, we did hear from CBSA saying that they're working um, with uh, they're working with the public health agency to to you know figure out where resources are best needed that this this work is always kind of ongoing and and uh, uh, presumably if circumstances change then then things could uh, resources could be deployed elsewhere in terms of the actual numbers uh, or why they are at one place and not at another uh, there's no real clear answer there you know I've, uh, on, on, on background I've heard from government sources saying that there may be some movement uh, on this issue just today after a story was published. I'm hearing that there may be some movement and we may see uh, there may be some discussions in terms of uh, uh, changes to this in the future. But uh, so far, nothing uh, concrete. All right. Brian Hill has been with us, investigative reporter for Global News. The article is no public health official screening for COVID-19 at Canadian land borders. And you can find it on our CHML website. Brian, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated and be well. Thank you very much. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've watched uh, in amazement of what's been happening in the United States of America as a very divisive president tries to pull people together and unite them during a pandemic. Uh, fascinating considering and we're, we're going to have a, a, a polling uh, expert on moments, uh, or sorry, a few, uh, few minutes from now uh, after the press conference of uh, Doug Ford coming up at one o'clock. And a lot of people are supporting leaders right now in, in, in what they are doing and everybody jumping on the same page. However, uh, in the United States, it's a little different. And now Donald Trump has threatened to pull back funding from the World Health Organization over the agency's uh, coronavirus response. To talk more about all of this, Henry Jasek is with us, political science professor at McMaster University, and he is with us now. Henry, thanks for taking the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing well, and always a pleasure to be with you. Another example of, of Donald Trump deflecting attention. Is that what this is about? Th that is. There's a whole bunch of things here, but certainly he likes to change the channel about and get people uh, not thinking about all the problems they're having in the U.S. with the virus, which are many. And, uh, yeah, so he's trying to get people to think about other things. And also, he it's a theme that he has been running uh, for a while is the is that uh, you shouldn't blame him and the United States the government uh, for, for being so slow to deal with the virus because uh, the Chinese, uh, you know, uh, authorities sort of fudged the figures, didn't tell people how bad things were, so you couldn't expect him to 
be uh, responding to what were in the beginning relatively low numbers uh, coming out of China compared to what they were. So he so this this has a couple of you know a couple of things that he's doing. He takes a whack at China, puts some blame on them for what's happening in the U.S. He gets. Uh, he gets uh, people to think about that issue rather than actually what's happening in the U.S. And also there's, you know, a traditional apathy to the World Health Organization and other international organizations by his base. So he throws some, you know, red meat out to his base saying, I haven't forgotten you here and I'm attacking uh, an institution I know you people don't like. Donald Trump says the World Health Organization told him not to close the borders to China. He comes right out and says they got that wrong. They got that wrong. What are your thoughts on on that angle? Well, the the world the health organizations have often said that closing borders are, you know, they they generally don't recommend it uh, for various reasons in the, in terms of studying these. Uh, it's hard for me to evaluate whether they're right or wrong on that, but. Uh, yeah, it's certainly uh, that is something that he probably picked up from from them, uh, and uh, you know he uh, he you know that's 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 something he can use once again to blame blame the World Health Organization on on the problems in the U.S. and uh, so Henry, how does a leader and we've talked about this at length for a long time? How does a leader who's really his his plan of attack is to divide people? He did this within his own company. He put executive against executive. We're certainly see what, seeing what's happened in the United States when he gets in arguments at, at press conferences and such. Um, how does a leader who has who has used their strength has a, a strength like divisiveness then unite people in a common cause like a pandemic? Well, it, it's very hard to imagine that that's a very good strategy. We know that's part of his personality. I mean, we can go back. He's written two books, co-authored two books, where a lot of that, you know, he explains why that that is a very useful strategy in being successful. And certainly he uh, he, he mobilized the base uh, for himself in uh, in 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 uh, the 2016 election, which allowed him to win that election, so it's 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 it just it always has worked for him in private life, seemingly, or you know he's been successful more or less with that economic, you know, in his business, he worked his one political, you know, campaign. It worked there, so he and it fits his personality, and we know he he likes to you know basically beat up on people, uh, humiliate people. Uh, attack people, and you know this goes on and on and on. We've just had the acting uh, assist- secretary of the Navy fired over the weekend. He just loves to fire people. We know he had a he had a TV show where that was a prominent uh, aspect. Uh, Does of, that of work show. though at times like this, Henry? Is that is that? And again, we've been trying to predict this for months, for yeah. years. But is is that going to fly now? Well, we'll have to see. In, this, in uh, we have a U.S. election coming up in November, and the U.S. people are going to you know put their Pass their judgment. Uh, the last, you know, some of the last polls I've seen when they've asked people who would you support in the upcoming election, the president or you know, Joe Joe Biden, who looks like he is very clearly going to be the Democratic candidate, and Joe Biden's leading him by about nine percent, as far as I could tell. I just I don't think the American people really like that, and uh, you know, and uh, but he's hoping that you know he's going to be able to. Pull, pull, pull things out of the fire, and we know he has a tremendous amount of money 
uh, for uh, you know political advertising in the in the fall. Uh, so we're we're going to be you know U.S. will be inundated with that, and he thinks that's going to work, and he thinks that he's going to be able to uh, go out there and campaign and you know fire up the, the his base the way he did in 2016. But certainly the right now the polls don't show that working, but he doesn't uh, pay much attention to them right now. Henry Jasek has been with us, political science professor at McMaster University. As always, Henry, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Okay, same to you, Scott. You, you may have been uh, looking online and seeing some of the images that are slowly uh, surfacing of people cutting their own hair. And I know right now you're probably all putting their, your hand up to your uh, head. I noticed the prime minister is, like, flipping the hair now. Have you noticed that? Um, uh, yeah, he, he's, he's up there and he's, it, it, it still looks like it doesn't have a lot of gray in it, but he's, it's getting long and he's flipping it. And, and I'm sure you're all thinking, yeah, I'm starting to look a little shaggy here. Well, is it a good thing to take all of this into your own hands? Let's bring in a professional. Tim Souls is with us, owners, uh, owner of Souls Classic Barbers and Souls Classic Inc. and is with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, Scott. Thanks very much for having me on today. Uh, first of all, give everybody your location so when this is all over, we can come in and get a buzz. Uh, we are located at 1915 King Street East, the King and Rosedale across from Metro. All right. Should this be something people should be taking into their own hands, or should they just let themselves go shaggy until they can come see you? Well, I think that all depends on how their wife wants to look at their hair for how long it is right now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was funny. Nobody's, it's funny you uh, should. Nobody really has much of a choice right now. You're either cutting your own hair or you're just uh, you're letting it go wild, I guess. It, it, it's funny because uh, my son is in the same predicament. So we were joking that we were going to cut his hair. I'm a bald guy, so I'll I'll strap yeah, yeah. on the number one thing and take it down to the wood, no problem on my own. So I said, you know, I can do this for you. And he said, well, what happens if all of this ends really quickly and I have to go back to school? So you know, I guess if you do something like this, it could be with you for a while. Well, I mean, it's uh, it's it's one of those situations right now where everybody's either cutting their own hair, they're buying they're buying clippers at Walmart or wherever Canadians yeah. are, taking the matters into their own hands, so to speak. But then again, we don't know how long this is going to last for or how quick it's going to be. And I mean, right now for me, I think it's a hygiene issue because some people just don't really maintain themselves properly, and there's uh, there could be health issues related with that as well too. Wow, I never thought of that. So are there any tips, Tim, that you can give us? I mean, it's not like you can give us a lesson over the radio here, yeah, I mean, but is there any basic things you can that you can advise us or anybody that's that's trying to do this? Perhaps, you know, make sure you're sober to start perhaps would be a good well, idea. Know, yeah, sober haircuts are a good thing. Nobody wants crooked bangs from one eyeball to the other <laughs> uh, on the top of the forehead, right? So, but uh, otherwise, I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna cut your own hair, just try to stick to something basic. Don't go crazy and try to pull off a hairstyle. You're not a trained professional like I am. And uh, at the end of the day, you know, it, it, a haircut always makes somebody feel good. So if right now it's going to be something positive in your life to change something for your for your day to day, then uh, maybe maybe go ahead and give it a whirl. But hopefully it doesn't ruin your day at the same time too. Uh, now, is this something you should be doing by yourself or like, can you cut your own or is this something you should be having your spouse do for you, which of course could create even more problems? That way, then again, that's also, that's also a household issue as well, too. <laughs> um, you could, I mean, doing it on your own is not a big deal. You can, if you're using just a number one guard that like you were talking about on your own style of hair, you can usually feel around the back of your hair with your hand and know if you've missed a spot or not. But in general, I mean, I would. I would probably prefer someone else to do it for me so you're not missing any pieces. 
Yeah, that's a good point. The extra set of eyes at the back of your head is always good. Uh, I've even heard I've even heard stories that where you know spouses are even dyeing their wives' hair for them. I mean, uh, I mean, you know, I guess that's something that's relatively easy. Well, ladies' salons are all closed down as well too, and they're uh, they, they uh, if their roots are coming in and they're not happy with it, they want to get their hair done as well. So someone's got to do it for them, and if they're not confident on their own. You know, I wouldn't. I'm, I'm pretty sure that my uh, my fiance is not going to want me to do her hair for her. That's for sure. <laughs> well, wait a sec. You're a trained professional. If I'm you can't do it, who can? <laughs> oh, I see. There you go. It's a different. It's a different situation when the dyes oh, come out and such. We're not, we're not fully licensed to uh, do chemicals and things like that anyway in our shop. So I've never been trained in that. And I don't necessarily think I'd be all that good at it either. So. <laughs> Wow. So now what about the instruments that you use? Because normally if you're going to do this, like you have special scissors as, as well as the razor or sorry, the, the, the trimmer and stuff, but even yeah, scissors, I mean, I mean can you be using household scissors for this stuff? No, you probably get like a pair of hair shears if you could find them somewhere. I'm sure they sell them at Walmart, but uh, I know with us, like our, our, uh, our equipment is industrial based equipment. It's higher end. It's more more expensive than your run of the mill pair of uh, con airs or whatever you're going to pick up at Walmart or at Canadian Tire, uh, whatever's available right now. Like our clippers run about 175 to $400 a pair where the ones you're going to buy there are about 40 bucks. So, Yeah, if that's the case, you might as well just perhaps wait till it's all over and, and well, see what yeah, happens. I so I'm hoping when this is all over and said and done, we're going to be extremely busy right now. And I mean, <laughs> I hate to do the shameless plug here, but I got a special going on right now, supporting local businesses, buying gift cards and whatever. I've got a seven haircut special on right now for the price of four. So you get $175 value for a hundred dollars. That's a great idea. Yeah. I'm trying to, trying to keep my business alive while this is all happening right now. So if anyone well, in the community can help us out, we'd really appreciate it. And website we can go to, to find out more. Uh, you know what though? It's uh, you can check my, check out my Facebook. It's just Tim souls or uh, right. souls classic barbers on uh, Instagram. And that'll be on there as well too. All right, well, get ready, Tim, because there's going to be a whole pile of people coming in with bad haircuts that you're going to have to fix. Well, I, think, I don't think you're too wrong about it either, Scott. But listen, thanks for your time today, and I hope you guys are all healthy and safe. Thanks so much. You too. Tim Souls, owner of Souls Classic Barbers and Souls Classic Inc. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.